1: Hello, and welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. I'm Joy Wiltermouth, an editor and reporter here at Market Watch. And I'm joined with Sheila Baer, the former head of the FDIC. Sheila was the head of the FDIC from 2006 to 2011, a role that earned her the unofficial title of the little guy's protector in chief from Time Magazine. Now she's on another mission to teach little kids and maybe a few members of Congress Why Easy Money Ways Can Create Moonshots, Useless (laughs) Innovations, and Other Dumb Things. Those are her words. She's here today to talk with us more about that and her two new books for children. Welcome, Sheila. Thanks for having me, Joy. I'm really excited to get going on this conversation today. But I I thought it would be good to just start off and say, why did you decide to write these children's book and to teach kids about money?
0: Yeah, so I've been doing this for a while. My first book, Rock and the Saving Shop, came out in 2006. And um, I actually got the idea when I was the Assistant Secretary for Financial Institutions at the Treasury Department. And I had started an Office of Financial Education. I'd worked with the then Secretary, uh, Paul O'Neill, on trying to get more financial education into classrooms uh, with, with some mixed success, anyway. <laughs> I was also a mother at the time, and I loved reading children's books, picture books, especially with my young children. My, my husband did too, it was a family event every night. And I thought to myself, well, picture books would be a really good, non-intimidating way to convey you know, just basic financial information to children because you have the power of the, the pictures plus the power of the words. And also because parents frequently read those books with their kids. So I thought, well, I can provide some self-financial education to the parents too by doing this. So uh, I found a a receptive publisher, Albert Whitman. They're a great publisher. Chicago-based, been around for a long time. And we published the first one, like as I said, in 2006. And now there are eight books in the series. And, uh, you know, they deal with uh, just just basic information. Uh, But they also, you know, there's so much literature out there for children that's about, oh, you know, make a million dollars and, you know, play the stock market and all this kind of thing. That's not what my books do. My my books teach children that you know to keep their money safe. as I did with the FDIC, trying to keep their money safe, their bank deposits, families. Now I want to help families keep their money safe by not falling for a lot of the tricks and traps that can you know be out there. Whether it's you know unaffordable borrowing, unpaid debt, scams, Ponzi schemes. Uh, those are the kinds of uh, stories that I tell in a funny, you know, non-threatening, uh, non didactic way. And I've gotten a lot of good feedback. They're, they're fun, they're funny, they're rhyming, and uh, and uh, I hope families enjoy them, continue enjoying them.
1: Well, I wanted to ask you a, a little bit about one of the characters in one of your new books later on, but I also just thought it would be good to hear a little bit, to tell us a little bit about what you've learned in the classroom. You've been going around to yeah. schools, talking with kids. It can be a very intimidating topic <laughs> <many>. I <laughs> mentioned to my dental hygienist yesterday, we were going to talk about this topic. And she said, oh, that makes my feet sweat. So, <laughs> so I thought it would be good to hear. What have, what have you learned from the kids and in the yeah. classrooms going to talk with people? Well, I, I,
0: I've learned from the kids. So the, one thing I've learned with the kids is to not ask them what alone is, because when I did that, a little hand went up and she said, that, that's when you're by yourself. <laughs> so oh, I said, okay, what's debt? Do we understand what debt is? And we talk about debt. So it's amazing though these these kids get it. They get it at an early age. Uh, they have. I did a second grade reading last week, and we were talking about buyer's remorse. So I said, "How many of you have bought something you really wish you hadn't bought?" Every single little hand went up. <laughs> but half of them had bought some kind of green gel thing that apparently was popular, and did not meet expectations. But we talked a bit about this. You know, I said, "What what could you have done differently?" And maybe you know, shopped around, thought a little bit more about it. So the thing I, the main thing in addition to just asking about what debt is instead of a loan is they get money. They get money. It was always my instinct in writing these books. They get money. They get money at an early age. They get what borrowing means. They get what, how you can get in trouble. If you borrow more than you can afford to pay back, they get that there are bad guys out there that might want your money. You need to be wary. You need to ask questions. And, uh, so they, they, they do understand and just ingraining those basic concepts and, 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 uh, principles early on I think uh, is really important. And again, my readings have have just only confirmed that they they totally understand these books and have wonderful questions to ask when I'm done with my readings.
1: Well, I should mention too that we've got a a link to your your books um, in the chat and we're going to be taking questions later. I have a couple questions lined up already. Quite a few people want to hear more from you. So you know, you talk about this is it's written for children. The reading age is seven to ten. But okay. you know, and we talked to you talked a little bit more about it too. But is this a book for sort of the captains, the titans of industry? Maybe they might <laughs> want a refresher on some of this. Some members of Congress <laughs> talk about well, that. Well, yeah,
0: unaffordable debt. My my. My, one of my earlier books, Billy the Borrowing Bluefooted Booby, is about a little booby on the glove Go silent that keeps you know he keeps buying stuff instead of paying his debt, his debt gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And my, my former boss, the late Bob Dole, tweeted that members of Congress should be reading this as our deficit is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, so I, I think policymakers, I think my more recent book about just kind of basic drivers around inflation, uh, they, they might uh, that might be uh, beneficial uh, to them so yeah there's a lot that that adults can learn you know i think i have one book uh, called shark scam it's about the ponzi schemes and when this whole mess with with ftx went down and sam bankman freed remember he was early on he was like this traumatized young man he was still you know putting out doing interviews and things like that and i kept i kept reading him saying if you just give me more time to raise more money i could have made this okay he didn't even understand what a Ponzi scheme was. That it was not okay to get new investor money to pay old investors. But you know, I think sometimes even the bad guys, in his mind, I don't want to excuse anything he did, but they think they're doing something good when they're really not because they don't have a good grounding and, and just you know basics around financial stewardship and accountability. So absolutely, I think we can all, as the financial system gets more and more complex, and more and more treacherous, frankly, for a lot of households we can all uh, use a little bit of a a primer again on some of the basics around accountability and and just ethics you know
1: around money right well and you're known to be a straight shooter and um recently you tweeted about moonshots and sort of again (laughs) the useless innovations let's talk about that what's going on you you mentioned ftx and you know the crypto guys kind of gone wild here yeah yeah well, I do.
0: You know, money. When money's free, you squander it. I mean, that's it's like anything, right? If if it doesn't cost you anything, you're going to value it less. And we've had free money for quite some time now. And so I do think you know it, it feeds a lot of uh, market speculation and money just going into speculative silly stuff. Uh, crypto's a great example. Mem stocks, I think, provide another example where not to say there may be some worth at, at some level, but you know, pushing uh, the values of these stocks so high using a lot of leverage because leverage is cheap. And the crypto bubble in particular, uh, you know, my gosh, you were using leverage 101 uh, in that unregulated market. it was it was uh, heavily driven by, uh, by free money. And so uh, now that interest rates are rising you see, you're seeing those markets adjust and that's you know painful in the short term, but but in the long term, it'll be a good thing. And I know a lot of uh, people, a lot of business models like venture capital that have benefited so mightily by free money because they use a lot of leverage in their businesses. I know some of them don't like the rates going up now. And so the argument's been, well, you know, we're not, to find the next big thing, we need to have free money to invest in the next big thing. And that's just not experience. Uh, True innovations, true value producing innovations will attract capital. And the capital will be smarter in terms of where it funnels that money If money costs something. So no, I, this moonshot argument, I I don't get, I don't agree with it at all.
1: Well, and perhaps we're just in that environment where it's going to be higher rates for longer and sort of having to live with it. The last, most of the last 20 years was this very unique patch in American history. Um, And now it does cost, it does cost money. Um, I also wanted to ask you a, a question that hopefully threads the needle from your time at the FDIC and overseeing banks and the, you know, huge mess we were in with the subprime mortgage crisis, and then to today. And one of your characters in your book reminded me of a character that has similarities in both ways. The Sly Seal from one of your new books, oh. The Daisy yes. Speculation. I thought it was it was funny, and it also made me think of at the time uh, my first job in journalism was covering the mortgage market fallout. Um, and I thought the Sly Seal at that time was probably the banks and you know the bond traders. Um, and now, and talk about that in the regulation overlay, we saw that happen. It took a long right. time to happen, but definitely banking regulations, right. um, in place after that. And now the sly seal is probably maybe, you know, the, uh, the crypto platforms that yeah. are lightly regulated. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I think, yeah, I mean, Slice Seal is kind of a, for, for for financial mis- misbehavior, <laughs> Slice Seal, you know, encompasses uh, those types of characters, those types of personalities who, unfortunately, we, we have in, uh, in finance. And so, yeah, in, in one of the books, he, he, uh, he, he's, he's encouraging this little Billy the Borrowing, Blue Footed Booby to engage in unaffordable borrowing, you know, to not, not pay it, to take out a really expensive loan to begin with and not pay it back. He keeps selling him new stuff to buy and he doesn't pay back his loan it keeps getting bigger and bigger. And yeah, a lot of that was um, that wasn't directly about subprime, but a lot of the the pitch to these families was, you know, they'd come knocking on the door, they would troll for people with equity in their homes, here take out this new loan yeah. and there's going to be a payment shock in a couple of years, we won't talk about that, they usually didn't even tell them about it. And then they just have to keep the, pay- the 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 mortgages would reset, they'd have to keep refinancing, borrowing more and more and more. And then until that didn't work anymore, when housing prices collapsed, they couldn't keep refinancing because they didn't have any equity in their homes. So it, yeah, there are some definite parallels. And I think Sly Seal in, in the most recent book, Daisy Bubble, he probably is more of an SBF character where he's you know, he's just, uh, he's just manipulating the supply. He's got a celebrity endorsement. He's trying to pump up the price of, of in this case, daisies. It's a little bit of a rep of the tulip bubble in Holland, but um, it, it's the same type of character. Where he's controlling supply, he's he's misrepresenting the value of the daisies. He's getting celebrities to come out and tell people to to uh, to buy it. He's providing leverage. He's lending them money so they can keep buying daisies, and the price keeps going up and up. And then, of course, he his own stash he sells uh, as he sees the market starting to turn. So, yeah, Sly Seal is a bit of a of a of a symbol of of misbehavior that we've seen. Unfortunately, I've seen a lot in my career as a financial regulator. Uh, but he's. I'm glad you picked up on him. I think he's an interesting character too.
1: Well, and let's talk about, on um, you know, your your regulator hat a little bit. Your experience that you've seen. Um, definitely, risk moves around the financial system in curious ways. At some point, um, there's a lot of people uh, worried about uh, the banking system right now. Let's hear. Let's hear what you think is going on and yeah. what people should be paying attention to.
0: Well, I, I think uh, let's talk about regulated banks and let's talk about the unregulated sector which, which could flow back to the banks. So I think on the uh, <clears throat> for the regulated banks, there is a lot more capital, whether it's enough, we'll see. I think that the main points of stress are with the midsize, what we call the regional banks. And uh, I do worry about them because the largest banks, whether we like it or not, they have too big to fail status. Nobody thinks you put a deposit in JPMorgan Chase, an uninsured deposit. The regulators are going to let JP Morgan Chase go down and you're going to take losses, so nobody believes that. So when you have a period of stress like this with the, the, the banks that are smaller, small enough to fail, you see money starting to go to these very large uh, banks. The smaller banks are in a better position because most, the vast majority of the deposit base are insured deposits, which are very stable. So you have this mid-tier of regional banks that do a lot of business lending, have a lot of business transaction accounts. A lot of money going in and out of those through their business clients. So those are almost always higher than the insured deposit limits. And I am worried about them. I think they're getting squeezed right now. Uh, There's a lot of deposit funding pressure on them that, you know, impacts their profitability. They've lost a lot of deposits. And I do think, as I've said repeatedly and unfortunately not getting much traction, that we had a temporary program to provide unlimited guarantees for those business transaction accounts for banks during the great financial crisis, because we had the same problem going on then. It was very successful. Now, for whatever reason, Dodd-Frank required a, a, you know, a congressional approval to do that. President Biden has to ask for that. He hasn't asked for that, so I, I, I think they should. I think we should provide that temporary guarantee again, but we're not, so I, I, I think it, we're gonna see more stress and it's gonna be concentrated in that mid-tier, and, and that worries me because we need, they're really not the only ones providing competition for the largest banks. If you lose that mid-tier, you have a barbell of small banks and large banks, the larger banks are just gonna get bigger and bigger and more concentrated in market power, which is not a good thing. I think, however, however I think the bar- large banks do have a potential problem in terms of their exposure with private funds. I think mean, the private funds have a problem too. You know, We've seen private you know, hedge funds venture capital, PE, kind of put them all in the, in the same category because most of them do use leverage in their in their businesses, in their business model. So the free money has really helped them. They've grown explosively. The SEC says it's about 21 trillion in assets now, compared to 23 trillion in the regulated banking sector. So just to give you a sense of how it's almost as big. And we really there's not a lot of transparency around that. So we don't really know what kind of stress they may be confronting right now. And they do, you know, so we can say, well, they're outside banks, let them fail. Uh, well, the problem with that is so you've got a lot of pension funds, insurance companies, and others that have, have put money into these highly leveraged business models to get more yield because of care, you know, the safe stuff, they can't get a yield and with in free money. So they they put a lot of money in these higher-risk entities. And then the big banks provide these entities with a lot of credit too. So they're they're counterparties, they're huge counterparties. So I do think uh, there we need more focus on on this non bank sector, and I think that is I'm worried about them standalone in terms of what kind of losses might be imposed if they get into trouble, then also how those losses could flow back to the regulated banks.
1: So I have two things I want to follow up on. The first okay. thing is you know you talked about the um, the fo- po- post 08 financial crisis. The FDIC put in. Um, I guess it was sort of a temporary program to ensure, And those deposits, it's very specific. It's for companies to make payroll, general business expenses. This isn't for, for example, Oprah Winfrey's 200, whatever. No,
0: you you don't want to do that. Yeah, if if people are just putting in money, you know, they're just chasing yield. Uh, No, you don't want to insure, provide unlimited guarantees of those uh, those kinds of accounts. This is for transaction, true transaction accounts where money is going in and out every day or you know continuously and they're, they're typically very low yield because we require that they be low yield to provide the guarantee because if you provide unlimited deposit insurance for everybody you will get very weak sick banks just offering really high rates on their on their deposits to bring money in and then they grow and you don't want them to grow if they're, they're, they're weak banks you know you only get smaller not bigger so yes thank you for clarifying that it was very limited it was for transaction accounts low yielding transaction accounts uh, for businesses and governments, and you know, nonprofits, institutional depositors.
1: And so the, the second thing is, we talked about how low rates can be super toxic. They right. blow up in your face, you know, leverage is, goes bonanza. The other end of the thing is the high rates and the, you know, rapid increase of rates yeah. that we've seen in the U.S. Um, to fight inflation. That's also putting pressure on banks and perhaps funds an area that we can't really see into the non-regulated entities. What what is what are their paper losses on the older bonds lower coupon? Of course, that's just how it works. Yeah. If you can get more money on this very similar bond or security today, a more a, a higher yield, well, those lower yield assets are going to be valued much less. They do. They
0: lose less. market value. That
1: they do. And there, yeah. and is that a problem, or do you think that there's enough of a band aid at least for banks? Yeah. With the federal, so, f- with the yeah, federal facility. So,
0: so I, yeah, so I think the, the failures we had last spring, especially Silicon Valley, was a bit of a wake up call. And I, I do think supervisors and bank man- risk managers are are more on top of that now. I won't say that it's, uh, it's not still a problem, but it is, you know, there's still a lot of unrealized uh, losses, securities losses on bank balance sheets, a lot of, you know, loans that have very low yields that are also, you um, you don't have to mark this to market obviously but but nonetheless they weigh on your your earnings so I think that is a problem I think it's a manageable problem we probably will have more bank failures but you know what banks fail you know it's okay the system goes on it's important people understand that households stay below the insured deposit caps businesses you know I'd like to get you an unlimited guarantee for now in your deposits but know your bank well and have conversations about their health so yeah I mean and in as you say in the non-bank sector, these businesses that have that use leverage, uh, you know, basically, you know, free money, basically, low, you know, low to negative real rates. Their, their business models is being challenged right now as, as their borrowing costs go up, and we don't have a lot of transparency around that. So, as much as I think higher rates will be better, higher rates are better for any economy. It, it creates more discipline in capital allocation. It restores incentives to save. It makes your financial system more resilient. You don't get these speculative bubbles that are they're destabilizing, but getting from point A to point B is going to be tricky. And I, I'm glad, as much as I want us to get us to a normalized rate environment, we may be close to that already. But I do think it's important for the Fed to pause, even if inflation whips a little more. They're they're still tightening. They're still letting uh, you know they're they're still shrinking their portfolio. I think they need to be very careful because. A financial crisis really could run our economy into the ditch. That's exactly what happened in 2008. 2008 happened when interest rates, they were tightening, interest rates were going up. It hit housing prices. The housing housing market started to, to tank. Then you had all of these mortgage defaults because people couldn't refinance anymore. And then those losses, as well as the, the trillions of derivatives positions sitting on top of how those mortgages were performed, that created a financial crisis that... Resulted in a tremendous withdrawal of credit. That's what put our, our economy into a tailspin. It wasn't so much just the losses on the underlying losses on the mortgages. We could have probably taken care of that. But then, when the trillions of, you know, hit the big institutions, and the threat back then wasn't the big institutions, they pulled back. You know, any any CFOs of any corporation that was around then, hey, what happened to your credit line during the financial crisis? You know, everybody remembers that pain and we don't want to go there again. So they need to be careful about this. Don't trigger a financial crisis. That's the real risk right now as we make this important transition to a more normalized rate environment.
1: Right. Self-landing sounds more important than, yes. than ever. Yes. yes. Um, yes. yes. I want to ask some I wanted to go to some of the readers' questions because we've sure. just got a lot here. Um, and I want to give them a time, give them some time to Absolutely. get their questions heard. Okay, John says it's too big to fail or too important to fail. Silicon, Silicon Valley Bank a good idea
0: <laughs> well I wrote I, I did not agree with the bailouts of the uh, the uninsured depositors in Silicon Valley I, I I respect the decision that was made by the regulators I know they did what they felt was necessary for system stability but the vast majority of those uninsured deposit it was a tremendous uh, cost of deposit insurance funds which is borne by all banks you know we pay premiums the, the FDIC is self-funded it's, that's not taxpayer money. So it was a tremendous uh, hit to the deposit insurance funds. And yeah, most of it went to very, some of the wealthiest people in the world. Kind of the narrative was it was to help with the payroll accounts and these transaction accounts we were talking about, but that was actually a pretty small percentage of, of who got bailed out. You know, there's two and a half billion of reserves for stable coins. Talking about crypto. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, I, I didn't like that, and it, and it really saddened me because we'd worked so hard in Dodd-Frank to give regulators the tools to end too big to fail, and I think that regulators do have those tools, but they've got to be willing to use it. And if you're going to blink every time somebody's going to take a loss, especially if they're big, important, you know, billionaire people, then that's a problem, and that really creates a lot of cynicism in the, in the general public, which, you know, which we had after 2008 about all those bailouts. So I did not like Silicon Valley, the bailouts there. I don't like too big to fail. There is something called Title II and Dodd-Frank that actually provides a mechanism that I think could work even for one of these large mega banks if they got into trouble. And there's a lot of planning around that. But again, those tools aren't, they don't, if the regulators aren't willing to use them then it's it's senseless to have them, or it's senseless to say we've been too big to fail if, if you don't have the resolve to use them. So I I don't. Thank you for asking that question. I do. I wrote about this last spring when it happened. I just really
1: didn't agree with that bailout at all. Um, okay, so let's see, uh, Angela. How likely is that a bank run could trigger the next financial crisis?
0: Yeah. So I don't. I don't think it will trigger the next financial crisis. I think I do worry about instability with these these sized regional banks. I think that would stress the economy because they provide a lot of small and medium sized business lending. But some of that is stabilized already and adjusted. And I, I think that problem again. There are going to be more bank failures, but I, the FDIC knows how to handle a bank failure. They did it. We had 400, almost 400 when I was there, and more after I left. So banks can fail and it, is not, it does not need to be disruptive. I think I worry more about this non-bank sector that we were talking about earlier, precipitating a financial crisis and the potential for that, those, cause you know, non-banks are a tremendous amount of, of uh, a source of credit now, to the extent those business models which are less transparent and more leveraged, get into trouble, that potentially causing a credit contraction that could really hurt us. But that's more, more, more where my worries are now in that non-bank sector.
1: So do you think we need um different regulations? I know everybody in the financial markets hates regulations until it <laughs> yes. saves their saves saves them in the end. Right now, we there were financial regulations around mortgages. Yes. A lot of families now have refinanced around three and a half percent coupons. Feel that's feeling pretty safe, pretty right. um solid, even with yeah. the higher rates and insulation. But right. um I do remember the first time that I I saw you was at a banking conference after the financial crisis. And, of course, a room full of, you know, bankers, mostly men, and grumbling about every word you had to say. (laughs) Yeah, That was my, I was a cover reporter. I was really surprised. Which (laughs) one? I was surprised. (laughs) And yet, you know, you continue
0: Well, they do. I mean, you know, the best thing that ever happened to the mortgage market was the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. I mean, we finally had rules. We finally had mortgage rules, and it has stabilized that market. And people have mortgages now that can afford it. They've got equity in their home, and those are those are all good things. Uh, you know, when capital requirements go up, our, our our banks, we've always had tougher capital rules than the, than the European banks. They complain and moan about it. You know what? <laughs> They're more profitable. Every time we tighten, we tighten regulation, particularly the capital regulation, their costs of capital go down because their investors know they're safer. So, you know, regulation, I don't defend all regulation. I really don't like bureaucratic, you know, thousands of pages of complexity. I have no time for that. I like simple, clear rules that align, you know, economic incentives, which simple capital rules do. So I don't defend all of it. But, you know, net, net, it helps the banks. It doesn't hurt them. And we're going to see that, I think, with the non-bank sector, that isn't regulated. I think if we're going to look at who's going to be getting into trouble. It's probably going to be in that area.
1: Can you talk a little bit about how you got into the baking industry? I think I know that, at least one of the stories, but yeah. get, give us an idea how you got your start. So,
0: yeah, so I, I actually started in the security side. So I was a senior vice president for New York Stock Exchange for, for several years. That surprises people, They don't know, I was in the private sector, yes, on an evil evil Wall Street. Uh, of course, that was, the, the NYSE back then was a self-regulated organization. It was a little bit different than, than the system we have now. But um, that, uh, then, you know, I, I, there was an opening at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. I had actually run for Congress, and uh, I worked for the New York Stock Exchange. I'd left to run for Congress. My old boss Bob Dole encouraged me to take a run at it, and I, I came close, but I ran a good campaign so president uh, bush h w bush asked asked if i would be you know, he offered to appoint me to the cftc and so that was my first job as a as a uh, as a derivatives regular actually commodity futures trading commission and then from that then i went back to the stock exchange for several years and then the the W. Bush administration asked me to come back to the assistant secretary for financial institutions at the treasury department. And that was my first foray into banking policy. I was, I was pretty naive about it uh, back then, but it was a really interesting portfolio. We had the GSEs under us as well. And, um, if we're on the policy side, not the regulatory side to make GSE policies. So that was really where I got my, uh, my toes wet on banking. And then, uh, after 9-11, uh, I stayed for a while to deal with all of that Uh, and then, but I had small children and it was, it was just, you know, my life wasn't my own anymore. So we moved to Amherst where I taught for four years, staying in the financial regulatory area. And then the W. Bush administration asked me to come back again to chair the FDIC. And so that's, that was my uh, progression into uh, banking. But, you know, I'd had the securities experience, the commodities derivatives experience, plus the banking experience. At the FDIC, so I think it really helped me a lot during the financial crisis because of the interplay, you know, how these mortgage-backed securities had kind of fed the beast, the private label stuff had fed the beast, and understanding those markets and their intersection with the banks, and then all the derivatives that were a huge problem that, that rested on top of those. It, it was really having all those three different perspectives was, was a big help to me during, the, during my time at the FDIC.
1: And can I ask you how you have... How did you manage navigating and sort of have a conviction and to stand up for it and to yeah. say it um, through the yeah. toughest times when everybody is scared. Everybody yeah. is very scared yeah. for not just at the immediate onset of the financial crisis, but for years later.
0: They were, you know, and I was very proud of, I, 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 my staff joke when I was at the FDIC, but there was a, a family circus cartoon <laughs> That showed that showed one of the little boys in his crib holding his piggy bag and it had FDIC written on it. And I love that because when everything else was kind of going crazy, people kept confidence in the FDIC. Money was flowing into banks into insured deposits. They knew the FDIC would protect them, and they did. So that was, you know, energizing and a source of pride for me and the entire great team at the FDIC. So I, you know, and I think, being chair of the FDIC is always, because it is public interfacing, it's, it's a Main Street you know, regulator and deposit insurer. Part of the job has always been to be out there publicly. You see what Bill Seidman did during the SNL mess. And so I viewed it as part of my job. And I did have a way of being able to break things down simply so for the general public to understand well, why I write the kids' books too, because I have, I have, I do have a knack of trying to break things down very simply and explain them, and I think people did did take some solace from that. So it was, uh, but yeah, there were there were certainly disagreements, and
1: uh, you know,
0: <laughs> it's what it is. We worked through it. I won some, I lost some, but I, I always stayed in there. <laughs>
1: Um, and let me ask another question, because we've got a couple more minutes to go, and I think we might go over maybe a couple minutes just sure, because we go we've got a lot yeah. here, um, if you have time. Um, let's see. What can you do to help low-income consumers be financially educated, give ideas that most people are not aware of? Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I think my, actually my my children's books I hope are part of that. Uh, and we have, you know, for lo- we donate books the books to the the, low, the schools that, that serve lower income communities. And again, I think these are books designed for parents to read with their kids. So I'm trying to do that a little bit to these books. I'm I'm in the process of writing another book called for older people, teens and really for any any age called How <laughs> How Not to Lose a Million Dollars because I don't you know, we have all these books, you know, here how to make a million dollars how to Think like a rich dad, you know, play the stock market. I kind of hate all that stuff. So my book will be about how not to lose money. I, When you were, you know, working families, are, I get it, they're paycheck to paycheck. I understand how hard it is to save. but even if it's just a few bucks, so many of the lower-income families fall into trouble when they have an emergency expense and they don't have any cash, they don't have family to help. They go to a payday lender or they put it on a credit card. And then they can't pay it back. And those balances just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So the book about how not to lose a million dollars will be about that, about, you know, the different ways debt can trap you, the really bad kinds of debt, like, you know, payday loans, carrying credit card balances, traps that you can occur around a bank account, overdraft fees. I have, I've, I've seen the heartache of just so many families losing money this way. You know, nothing yeah. to be mad or to, to, to get family to open their first bank account and then get trapped with overdraft fees so that's that's my next book and hopefully i'll have that out in a year or so and i hope that will help
1: it's well, two, well, two things <laughs> Two things on that. I just wanted to say also my experience, uh, you know, being an intern at the Daily News when people were losing their houses in Queens and so many of the families actually were Hispanic. Not the first language was English and they were in these loans. They didn't understand fitting. sometimes having the kids read the documents for them. Yes. Um, have you thought about having your children's book? in other languages than English we as have. well?
0: I, I have been. I would love to have it translated into Spanish. It has been. Uh, they, they are, they're international, so there are Chinese and Korean and Turkish and <laughs> Romanian. There are, there are tons of, uh, you know, in Asia and Europe, but we haven't addressed that need in the US. So yes, I would like to do that. Uh, we don't we need to find a publisher or some funding to get them translated. But I would I would very much like to have them translated into Spanish too. So, yes, that's okay. has top of mind for me, for sure.
1: Okay, and my last question, is it a saver's paradise right now? You can put your money in a savings account if you want it. It is know, maybe in a- loving it. Yes. <laughs> you know, my first
0: book, rock first book, Rock Rock, and the Savings Shock used what was then a typical rate of five percent on a savings account. And over right. years, <laughs> that hasn't been, you know, so it's been hard to teach the value of savings, at least with a, a risk, you know, a risk-free investment like a treasury bond or a or an insured bank deposit. And now, yes. So you know, people who don't have the money to have, be in a brokerage account and don't really want to do that, yes, you have a safe place to put your money in your FDIC-insured bank. And I, I think it's wonderful. I'm celebrating. So I know borrowing costs are going up, but your save your 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 rewards for saving is going up too, and hopefully that'll help give you a little more uh, breathing room on your finances. And uh, and I think that's a good thing. That's a very good thing
1: do you have time one for one more question sure, sure. We'll okay commercial real one. estate from trip he just says big question mark real estate <laughs> commercial real estate commercial real estate big question mark oh, i imagine he yeah, wants to commercial- know if it's the shoe to drop
0: yeah so commercial estate's a real problem uh it's not everything Multifamily housing is still holding up pretty well uh it's office space especially in urban areas it's, it's retail and especially in urban areas and there is a lot of exposure there for both banks and non-banks. However, I think that's gonna be a slow burn. I don't think that's gonna be a big shock to the system, the way subprime mortgages were. I think that's gonna be a slow burn because typically the, uh, the, the borrower that you have with commercial real estate loan is a reasonably sophisticated business or individual who will work with the lender and try to you know do a restructuring or a different repayment plan to help get through this. Versus during the subprime crisis, we had a lot of scared people who weren't communicating with their servicers. And then we had a lot of really bad servicers who just weren't doing their job to try to get these loans restructured so people could stay in their homes. But with commercial real estate, we had a problem in 2008 with the 2008 crisis as well. But because you had a borrower who's engaged with the lender, you know, modifying the loan terms, doing workouts, it was, there were losses, but they were, they were slower, they're more spread out. So I think that's what's gonna happen this time again.
1: Yeah, thanks for making that distinction. Sure. It's families yeah. versus people who have been operating businesses. Yeah, they know the they know the ropes. They do. Yeah, unfortunately, and we didn't. We
0: tried to get more word out with families, but well, we we did save several several hundred thousand homes, so I feel good about that.
1: Well, thank you so much. It's been a delight. I really appreciate you joining us today. Um, thanks for being here. Absolutely. And tomorrow. And so please join us tomorrow. We've got another um, Barron's Live. My colleague, Beth Pinsker, financial planning columnist at MarketWatch. She will be talking with Crystal Milliken. She's the senior sales director at Boomer Benefits. And she'll have um, answers for all of your questions. So tune in tomorrow.
0: The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.